I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. Hey everyone, it's Blake. If you are listening to this, I am currently in Spain enjoying a friend's wedding right now, which is super awesome. I'm sure I'm having a great time. And uh, due to that, I did not have time to record a brand new episode for today's release. That being said, I have an old episode for you that was at one time released on the Patreon feed as a Patreon exclusive episode. So although it is an old episode, it's not definitely one that you have not heard before because it was never released on the main feed like this. It is Chemical Engineer with Matt Templin. So it is a very, very science-dense episode. We'll talk about um, diodes and semiconductors and things like that. If uh, if you like science, you should like this episode a lot. If you do not like science-dense things, it might not be the episode for you, but you know, check it out anyways. Without further ado, here is Chemical Engineer. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, Blake. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, dude. Stoked to talk to you. So um, I... When I was younger, like when I was your age, I never really cared much about the field of engineering. I was much more of like a talker and kind of knew that I wanted to get a marketing degree. Um, But from the little that I do know about engineering, it seems like there's basically three major paths for engineering and that anything else that I see is kind of like a sub path with within one of those three major areas so um the three that i see are mechanical engineers chemical engineers and electrical engineers so first of all would that be correct to assume that those are kind of like the three major branches of engineering and then if you could explain to us how those branches of engineering differ from each other yeah that'd be correct so you can think of it as those three broad fields of engineering being mechanical which would be kind of the design and constructions of all things kind of machines um chemical engineering which would basically be uh the design and production of um, different materials uh, chemicals and energy into into consumer products and then you have electrical engineering that deals with the um, technology of electricity and uh power to power devices Interesting. So on the chemical engineer part, which is what you are, so I'm sure you know a lot more about it. You said um, both chemicals and energy and like the way to manipulate those. What, what do you mean when you say energy? Um, so chemical engineering, you're, you're kind of producing um, based from raw material, you're producing a product and uh, you're going to be dealing with chemicals, uh, materials and energy. So energy could be if you're um, so chemical engineers, one of the big industries that chemical engineers are employed is the petroleum industry. So you're taking a raw material and you're producing a um, product that is being used as energy or for energy, I should say. Okay, right. I guess that makes sense that if we are trying to use energy in any way, whether it be um, solar, even, I guess, even if it is electrical, um, or like gas powered or in the future, like, you know, star travel or whatever, um, you're going to need a chemical engineer to break down the chemistry behind what is actually taking place without it, without, without knowing what's happening in the chemistry of, let's say, uh, like a solar panel, you're not really going to be able to convert that, that, that sun into anything useful. Correct. 
Okay, cool. That totally makes sense. So, um, all right. The, the next question that I have to just kind of lay... By the way, these are kind of like foundational questions to set the stage for questions that will come later. Um, so the next kind of foundational question is if you could just explain to us what your company does really quickly so then we can break apart what you do and uh, just more interesting stuff about being a chemical engineer. Sure. So I work for a company called Tower Jazz Semiconductor and we make integrated circuits. So first off, to start... What is an integrated circuit? Um, basically, an integrated circuit is, you can think of it as a computer chip. So it's a device that can be found in a whole wide range of applications. And we make that actual chip device. Um, and that device is built upon a semiconductor, which is a certain material. And we can get into what exactly that is later. Um, so my company is the manufacturer that builds those computer chips from uh, semiconductors. So then, uh, if you could explain to us what a semiconductor is and like why we use them so much, why they're used so frequently in computer chips and seemingly everything. Yeah, so a semiconductor is basically a classification of a material. Um, so every, all, most people know of um, metals, which are conductive of electricity. They allow the transport of um electrons through the material so they can conduct a current um and then there's insulators so an example of um, a conductor would be metal um, copper and then an insulator would be glass so a semiconductor kind of falls between the two types those two types of materials um and its electrical properties are that of between that of an insulator and a conductor and the interesting things about semiconductors is that they're Conductivity varies with the temperature of the material itself. Um, and these materials are useful because you can basically manipulate their electrical properties, which when building a circuit is something that um, is basically essential because these circuits are basically switches and you have to be able to control the current flow through them. So that's why we use semiconductors. And these, these switches are basically the basic fundamental components of any sort of computer chip device or electric device okay so and how deep does this go like how many devices are semiconductors used in are like would semiconductors be used in my microwave would semiconductors be used in my toaster uh essentially yeah um so you if you want to think of uh basically anything that draws electricity would use some sort of circuit and thereby most probably use a, uh, a semiconductor um, device. So the applications for semiconductors can give you, uh, just to give you a general overview, would be um, mobile devices, um, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, um, any sort of communication device. And then there's also imaging sensors in cameras. There are radar detection devices. Um, automotive industry is another huge application. Um, so the, the applications are really widespread. Would it be fair to say that anything electric, like anything that has power has a semiconductor inside? Like if you can, if you plug it into a wall or if it has a battery inside of it, it has a semiconductor. Yeah, that'd be a pretty, pretty fair generalization. Wow. Crazy. So, um, I luckily I got to and I'm going to put links to some great videos going over semiconductors and some of this stuff on the um, on the show notes for this because it's uh, 
it's really dense and deep trying to understand this stuff, especially, um, I mean, you have the difficult task of just trying to explain it with audio and not uh, visually. Um, but when you were explaining that a semiconductor is exactly what it sounds like, it semiconducts. It's not as conductive as a piece of metal, but it is more conductive than like a piece of rubber or a piece of glass or something like that. What do you mean exactly by that? Is it a material that is in between the two of those? Like just a single material that is more conductive than a piece of metal? Or is it something different entirely? So we basically start out with a, a insulator. Um, and then we're through our processing, we're making it a semiconductor. So we're basically manipulating how conductive that material is. Okay, so what do you start with, and then what do you like? How do how do we end up at having a semiconductor? So the majority of um, semiconductor manufacturers start with crystal silicon, and then through our processing, we would dope that material with other atoms, which may have more or fewer electrons, and then that allows for charge carriers. So that material then becomes conductive. I love that it's called doping, by the way, the same thing that we use for like sports and stuff like that. It's great. Yes, we're uh, we're changing the performance qualities of the material by doping. <laughs> That's great. So um, like what what do we are you just adding free electrons in in stuff like that? And that that's it. That just completely changes everything. We're not necessarily adding free electrons. Um, we're actually doping the material with other atoms. So the chemistry behind it, if you think of um, basically each one of these silicon atoms have four valence electrons, which valence electrons are, you can think of them as the outer electrons, kind of like my hands and legs that are able to hold on to other valence electrons of other silicon atoms and join other atoms to make a bond. So the silicon structure that is um, that insulative uh, crystal structure, all of those four valence electrons are being shared with other uh, silicon atoms. So there are no free electrons to move around. Um, right. So what Everyone we're doing... Everyone has four arms. Everyone's got two arms and two legs in that scenario. Correct. So yeah. everyone's holding on to someone's legs. Everyone has someone holding on to their legs. And there's, right. no, there's no free legs. There's no free arms. Correct. Which those arms and legs, are the analogy are the, uh, the electrons, Right. Um, so what we're doing is we're basically doping that material with an atom or a, a person. We'd um, have either more electrons being five instead of four or only three instead of four. Um, so I mentioned charge carriers before. That, that allows um, the material to have charge carriers. So therefore, those extra electrons that aren't being bound, that aren't holding on to some other neighboring atom, are free to move throughout the material, which makes it uh, conductive. So you're not just doping the material with additional electrons. What you're actually doing is you're doping the material with other atoms. And um, if you think of the, the periodic table, there's all these different atoms, and they're organized in columns. And each column, one column from the next, has a different number of valence electrons, um, which valence electrons can just be thought of as the outermost electrons that have the ability to be either shared or transferred from one atom to another, and those form bonds. So in a perfect crystalline um, silicon structure, all of those 
outermost electrons are being shared between the neighbors, and those form covalent bonds. So in a perfectly insulated uh, silicon material, all of those electrons are being shared, so there are no free electrons to move around. So a silicone means... atom has got four valence electrons, one on the top, Correct. one on the right, one on the left, one on the bottom. So as yeah, long as there was... It's a tetrahedral um, structure, so it's kind of like a... Uh, kind of like a TP pyramid structure. Okay, so as long as there were four uh, four other silicone atoms surrounding any given silicone atom, they're perfectly going to pair up with one another and just and they just grab onto each other. Correct, yeah, and that forms kind of this perfect lattice structure. So and kind of like with carbon with a diamond, you know, the the clarity of the, di- the diamond is determined by the crystal structure uh, on an atomic level and any sort of defects in that diamond on the atomic level are because there might be some sort of grain boundary or slip or something to where that structure has been compromised. So those bonds are no longer in this perfect organized manner. Um, And in the same sense, when you dope that silicon material, what you're actually doing is you're not just implanting some other electron per se, but you're actually doping that material, you're shoving in some other foreign atom. So that might be an atom that has more electrons, valence electrons, than the silicon atoms or fewer. So what ends up happening is your neighbor might have five electrons, but you only have four to share, which means there's going to be one extra electron floating around that is unbonded. So that electron becomes a charge carrier. And what you have with a charge carrier is the ability to have that electron hop from atom to atom. And essentially, that's conducting a current. That's a mobile um, electron that is able to move through the material from um, atom to atom. And that's what's actually allowing the material to be conductive. That's really interesting. So it, we're speaking about obviously in the most basic of senses right now, and, and right. You're, you're multiplying these numbers by millions and billions and stuff like that when you're looking at like an actual semiconductor. But if if let's say there was only that one, you only doped that one single um, piece of the uh, thing to put in this uh, this extra valence electron, and you have this free electron floating around now, you and you touch some electricity to it or you power it in some way, theoretically, that one electron, because it's not attached to anything, is going to be the only thing kind of impacted by that electricity and charged by that electricity. And now that one that one electric free electron or one charge free electron can go moving throughout the entire thing as it sees fit, like a little like puzzle piece to get to like the end of the puzzle with its charge. Uh, yes and no. The only thing um, is that the the conductivity of the material is proportional to how many of those charge carriers you have. So if you think of it as you're in a lava field and you only have so many so many safe steps to step on, if you're trying to go a distance of a football field and you only have one step in the very middle, it's not very feasible to get across that that lava field if you only have one step and that's separated by this huge distance in between. Um, So you can think of that as the free electron that's in this material. 
So sure, what you're you can... talking about right now is probably a lot of what back in the day chemical engineers like you had to do is to, to come up with numbers of like how many things do we have to dope in here in order for this to work properly. Correct. Yeah. And, and that, that actually is we can get into what exactly I do um, as a as a process engineer with a chemical engineering background. That's kind of more of the electrical engineering device um, physics of it all. But essentially, the more you dope that silicon material with these these dopants, um, the more conductive that material becomes. So it's the the math behind it and figuring out how many um, atoms or how many electron volts of, of that kind of energy state that you need to differ the conductivity is something that definitely has been number crunched to figure out. Okay, so uh, one quick thing I just want to mention to everyone listening to this. These concepts are very difficult to grasp. Uh, I think Matt is doing a phenomenal job explaining it. If you feel like uh, you want to try to understand it further, in the show notes, I'm going to put links to some videos on YouTube that were absolutely fantastic. Having a visual representation of this, I feel like, really helps as you're trying to understand it. That being said, um, like I said, I I think that Matt just did a really good job explaining that. So um, I'm sure you probably actually kind of get it just from hearing about it so um i guess one question that i would have is what like if you could give us examples of types of products that would need a a less conductive semiconductor and types of products that would need a more conductive semiconductor um you were saying that you can dope things certain amounts you know and the more that you dope it the more conductive it's going to be like when would that be useful and when would you not want to dope something very much um I'm not a uh, I'm not the the device physics expert on this, but all my answer to that would be um, most or one of the applications for semiconductors um, or integrated circuits would be power amplification. So basically, the fundamentals of of how these circuits work, um, if you break them down to like the basic component, it would be a transistor. Um, which is a whole nother discussion of exactly what a transistor is. But essentially, you're amplifying the power. So you're, you have a certain input electrical current, and then you're magnifying that current to, um, in a larger circuit. So I guess one of the things that doping was, would do is depending on how much you have doped, um, it would basically vary how much applied current you would need to be able to turn on that switch to allow that larger current to flow. Um, so that would be one of what, from what I can think of, one of the basic uh, examples of why you would have certain material have more dope than others. Um, but there's a lot of other device physics and, and actual processes that use different dopants for different reasons. And, and we can kind of get into that a little bit more later, but um for a real basic explanation, I guess that would be my answer. <laughs> okay. And so we mostly went over the type of doping where you are adding in um, an extra electron uh, or, you know, by changing the atomic structure. There's also um, subbing out some of the or whatever doping some of the silicon atoms with uh, atoms that only have three covalent bonds as opposed to having four so you're you're taking one away what would that be good for as opposed to um, the adding of an extra electron so this gets into how a diode works so basically you have um, you can dope the silicon material with either a uh, element that has 
fewer electrons. So silicon has four valence electrons. Um, so it's able to, like you said, form four covalent bonds. So if you dope this material with, say, boron, which is commonly used, boron only has three valence electrons. So therefore, we um, they refer to it as forming a hole. So it's an absence of an electron. So it doesn't have that boron doesn't have the ability to create that fourth covalent bond with its neighboring silicon atom because it only has three electrons to share, right? Um, so they refer to that as a p-type um, substrate. And then on the other end of that, you have a you can dope it with an atom that has five valence electrons, such as phosphorus or arsenic. Um, and that would be basically putting an atom in that structure that has five valence electrons. So you have one extra electron that isn't that isn't bonded to a neighbor. So that would be considered an N-type material. Um, so the reason why you have different dopants to make different uh, material types, either N or P, is because those junctions form the basic diode or transistor, um, which is kind of the groundwork for how all integrated circuits work. So when you say those those junctions form a diode, uh, what, what you, when you say those junctions, you're referring to where the N-type meets the P-type, that, that area right in the middle, right where they meet, is what kind of makes the magic happen? Yeah, more or less. So um, I guess I can kind of give a very basic explanation of what a diode is. So just like you said, you have that P-type region, which is um, has those basically the absence of a bond. So it has what we call a hole. And then you have the N-type region, which has that one extra electron. And you have to remember that these aren't positively or negatively charged because they have uh, they're neutrally charged it's just a matter of they have uh, charge carriers and those charge carriers are either those holes which are an absence of a bond or those extra electrons which is you know not being bonded with any other atom um, so what happens is you have the p-type region and the n-type region and then the um, that basically, those are all charge carriers which allow current to flow through. Um, so essentially, every electron, its goal in life, <laughs> or on the atomic scale, is to find another electron and pair with that electron and form a bond. So these free electrons are hoping to find another electron to pair with to bond, right? So you have this these free electrons right next to these holes. So the electrons that are nearest to the holes are going to fill in those holes. And eventually there's just kind of going to be this small region which is void of any charge carriers. It's void of either the holes or the electrons. Because and all the, let's say all of the electrons are on the left, all the holes are on the right. All of the electrons on the left that are closest to the holes on the right have already jumped over and they've now right. filled these holes on the right now you're just left with this kind of area in between where it's basically just silicone again it's basically just like there's not everyone's filled up there's no more need for filling and there's no more extra electrons right it's uh it's the middle school dance so you have all the girls on the right side of the gym and all the guys on the left side of the gym and there's no one 
no one, no free dancers in between to dance. Uh, <laughs> they've kind of formed this gap. So, um, so basically, there there needs to be this push. There needs to be something to kind of push them from and get them closer together, so that they can they can move across and fill the electrons can fill the holes. And the only way to do that is to apply a current. So essentially, you can think of as this is a switch, and the switch is open. So there's no current flow. The nearest electrons have filled the nearest holes, and then there's a separation between the electrons and holes that are further apart from one another. And the only way to get those electrons to hop over and fill those holes and start moving throughout the material is to apply an external current. Um, and you could think of that as an external voltage. So there's that basically physical push to get things moving. Um, and what's neat about a diode, the, the specific electrical property of a diode is that if you connected a battery with one wire joining one end, the P end, and then a second wire joining the N end, and you connected that to a battery, if you connected it one way to the battery, no current would flow. Now, if you flip that battery over and you connected it the opposite way, you would have current flow. So a diode is a basic um, electrical device that is has a forward bias so it allows electricity to move in one direction but not in the other because you're allowing because the electrons again if let's say all of the, the extra electrons are on the left all of the open holes are on the right everything needs to move to the right then it, there's no way that the that things can move to the left would that be correct right so um opposites attract right so if you have, like you said, you said all of the um, electrons on the left and all of the holes on the right, correct? Yeah. So if you applied a current to where you have the negative end of the battery connected to the left side of that material, the end, end side of that material, basically you're going to have more electrons flowing. Um, and then the positive end of that battery is going to be connected to the... Um, so the right side of that material. So basically what you have is you have more electrons coming out. Um, charge flows from negative to positive. So you have electrons flowing through the battery and then basically pushing those electrons closer and closer to that gap region in between. So the electrons are being pushed closer and closer to where the uh, open holes are. And eventually, if there's enough applied voltage, which is the threshold voltage, um, those electrons will have enough energy to jump to those holes. And as the holes are filling up, the holes are kind of moving in the opposite direction. Um, and then eventually you have this closed loop. So current is, is flowing. So the electrons are moving, the holes are moving, and everything kind of comes together. So that. So now it almost becomes like a full conductor. Yes, essentially, yeah, you're completing the circuit. Um, the intrinsic uh, properties of the material, so if you were to remove that battery, basically the current would cease to flow. Um, so the material itself is still a semiconductor, but because you have that applied current, you're kind of closing that, that switch. Kind of temporarily so allowing, making it a conductor. Correct, yeah, which is uh, exactly what a semiconductor is. Um, it's it's semiconduct. So in a certain state, it will conduct electricity, and in another state, it will be an insulator. And you can change the state of that material, whether or not it's conducting or insulating, based off of whether you're applying a certain electrical current to it, um, the temperature of the material, 
Uh, you can even, there's certain materials where if you shine light on it, it can become conductive. So the semiconductor is, is, is the material type is that based off of its surrounding environment, it changes conductivity. Now, that basic example that you just gave with a battery and everything kind of moving in one direction and the electrons filling up the holes, and it now basically becomes like a, almost like a full-blown conductor, what happens when you turn the power off? Do more, do, does everything go back to the way that it was and all the electrons jump back to being some free electrons and all the holes go back to being holes again? Or do the holes like forever stay filled once the power has been turned on to it one time? So yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, and the answer to that is because you still have this neutral material type. Um, so every every atom has a specific number of electrons that is going to be in its valence shell. Um, so just because you've you've applied this current, but once you remove that external current from the battery, um, the atoms that are looking to have four electrons and, and their valence shell are only going to have four electrons. The atoms that are looking to only have the five electrons in their valence shell are only going to have five electrons. So basically everything goes back to its natural state, oh, right. uh, its natural neutral state. Um, so, so everything goes back to its neutral state. So its charge, uh, is zero. So there's no negative or positive charge. Right. Um, so that's when everything kind of natural settles back into the, holes over here and then the electrons on on the other side okay so you're only temporarily yeah. changing the structure of these things as soon as the power turns off the the structure goes back to what it was correct man this is all so interesting um it's just amazing to me that people came up with this technology so long ago i it's so hard to even wrap my head around today and yeah it's amazing yeah it really is um all right, so let's talk a little bit about your job now that we that we kind of understand semiconductors. Um, so, what does your job do as a chemical engineer at this company that makes semiconductors? So, my job, um, my actual job title is a process engineer, um, and you can break up my company, or or basically, you can break up the fabrication of a semiconductor into three or four main parts. So we talked a little bit about what a semiconductor is. And one of the things we mentioned is that we're changing the inherent properties of that material, that silicon material, by doping it. So obviously, one of the steps that we do from creating these devices is we dope that material. Um, and we build all of these circuits. So there's billions of circuits on each individual device, and those have to be built. Um, and the way you go about building those is you can think of it almost as like a 3D Lego set um, or a puzzle, if you will. And in order to build that, you have to deposit new layers. Um, you have to kind of etch away or cut away certain masks, um, certain outlines in the material. And then you have to dope the material to change its electrical properties. Um, so there's there's all of those steps. There's engineers for each one of them, and there's equipment um, that that do each one of those processes. Um, so as a process engineer, I'm in charge of a certain process. So for my specific role, I'm in charge of the diffusion, where we 
you might have a material that's been doped with these ions, and then it comes to me, and I am in charge of a step that actually drives those ions deeper into the crystal structure. Um, and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of intricate steps, and we can kind of go through those. But basically, I am the expert of a certain process and the tools used to carry out that process. How could it not? Aren't aren't you having robots building these things, or people building these things? Well, yeah, everything is built. Um, it's all machinery. So there's all equipment that runs certain. Um, certain recipes and certain processes and basically you're just cycling product through product after product after product um and it's being built from the ground up uh, so an important thing is to manage to make sure that everything is maintained in a controlled way so that if there's anything drifting you can see that and then you can recalibrate or retune or um vary your process to get it back uh, in control. Could you give us an example of this and like some time that you did something and where it helped and stuff like that? Because I'm still having, a hard, I think, uh, I, and this, this is actually something I've wondered about a lot in the past of like, it's a computer, so it can't make a mistake is kind of my thought process or it's a machine. So it can't make a mistake. If you put blueprints in for a machine to make you a Ford Taurus at no point, is it going to spit out a, like dodge dart it's always going to have a ford taurus come out you know so why do you have to have someone standing there watching to make sure a ford taurus comes out there are a couple things like there's there's process control like something with the process can go wrong and then you have because you have your normal like tool performance um the variability in the tool so you can say that okay this tool is controlled um and my target is a certain thickness. So if you're depositing a certain layer of film, you have a target that is plus or minus X sigma. Um, and sigma is your standard deviation. So you have monitored these things and you're using statistical analysis to say that my tool has the ability to meet my target within plus or minus X percent of that target. And I can do this 99 nine percent of the time or whatever your whatever your uh sigma you know your distribution right if you're looking on a bell curve however much of that data fits within what you define is an acceptable range um so when something falls out of that distribution you have to figure out whether or not that is a tool issue and your tool maybe has malfunctioned to where it's no longer producing within its control and you have to be able to troubleshoot that tool issue. So for instance, um, my area which, where I work is the diffusion area. Um, and the diffusion area, what we do is we have a few different processes. So one of them is to grow silicon dioxide, which is a chemical reaction between the silicon substrate and oxygen in a controlled environment at a controlled temperature and pressure in order to grow silicon dioxide. And electrically, silicon dioxide is, it's an insulator, so it does not conduct ele electricity. So um, this might be used in a certain junction of the circuit to where you need a insulator in order to, as part of the switch. So you have, you have your bare uh, silicon wafer and you're putting it into this furnace step. 
And there's all these sort of parameters that you're controlling. So you're controlling the temperature, you're controlling the pressure, you're controlling your gas flows. Um, you're controlling all these things and there's monitors for all of them. And they're supposed to meet their target and do and meet their target time after time after time after time until something fails. And that failure might result in a product that goes through that process. And you measure that product as your, as your process control. So you're doing a controlled sampling and you realize that one of your products is outside of, of target, right? And part of my job is to be able to determine what rent, what went wrong. So I have to say, okay, my machine is no longer producing Corolla after Corolla after Corolla. I, I came out with a Dodge Dart for, for the sake of your example, except on a, on a very small scale. It's just one individual part, right? Um, and you have to troubleshoot whether or not it might be a, a tool component. So maybe there's a, an MFC or a gas flow modulator or a temperature controller or um, a certain valve or whatever has has either broken or faulted or is drifting or whatever it might be. And that's resulting in your your final product to be outside of, of control. So it's it's out of spec. Um, so that's one sort of, of area um, where you might you might need you would need an engineer. So you would need a chemical engineer who understands, such as myself, who understands the process and understand what each step is supposed to do, what its intended outcome is, and where that outcome meets in a certain specification. And then you have a mechanical engineer that understands the equipment and understands how that equipment runs, how all the different components work together, and how they how they should work, and how, if there is a failure, where that failure might reside. So as a process engineer, you kind of have to understand both both things. You have to understand the device and each layer of the device and how it's built and how certain layers affect the final performance of the device, as well as understand the equipment that is used to build that device. Um, so it's kind of a collaborative effort between, between the equipment people, the electrical engineers, the chemical engineers, process engineers, such as myself. Um, it sounds like everyone's kind of doing, especially you, um, but it, it, there's a lot of like detective work and then this like team approach to to try to figure out like what the heck is going on and now how how can like the two of us fix this together? Like me, the chemical engineer, and you, the mechanical engineer, like what do we have at our disposal to be able to make this work right again? Right. And I, I realized I didn't really answer your question, but... You know, like that's only a very small percentage of the job. Um, you comment. You know, you made the you made the uh, you made the comment before. Oh, well, you know, if if all of these things are done by robots, you know, why do you need engineers? Everything is controlled. You know, you have this robot that does everything. There's very few human interactions, and that's actually something that we strive for. You know, you want to make as as Few things as possible involve a human interaction. Ideally, you want to make everything automated, and that's because it just limits error. You know, you have a, you have a much smaller margin for error if you just completely remove any sort of um, human component. So you're right. The majority of time, 99.9% .9 of the time, 
you don't need an engineer to sit there and watch you know the process and make sure things are running fine because we have all of our checks and balances there that basically do that job for us and really on a uh, manufacturing level we're only there to diagnose and basically do the investigative work behind when something does fail and why did that fail what caused it to fail um what do we need to do to prevent that to fix the problem you know at hand and then how do we prevent that problem from ever occurring again because the end goal in a manufacturing um company is to have the highest yield possible so you want to limit the amount of of um internal hiccups or failures that cause you to basically throw away product. So would it be safe to say that the majority of your job is data analysis and statistics and stuff? Um, that's part of my job. Uh, like I said, most of the time, every, the, the equipment and the process sustains itself. The other part of my job is if, we, if the guys that are the electrical um, device experts or... Um, you know, we have a customer that might request a certain process that we haven't developed yet. The other part of my job is to work with these different groups, the electrical engineers, the device um, physics experts, uh, research and development, um, and work with these guys if they come up with a new idea. And it's basically to implement that idea and get it, get it built and working on a manufacturing level. Um, so I'm the process owner. Uh, I, I have this set of equipment that I run. And if they come to me and they have an idea and they say, you know, in order to improve either this new product or we're going to come up with this entirely new product, we need you to um, do this, this, and this. Uh, we need these new processes. So whether it's depositing a new layer or coming up with, with a new um, set of processes to build this new circuit or whatever it might be, I'm the guy that they come to with the idea. And they might have a certain specification that they want to meet. And then I work on my side, as well as with the mechanical engineers, who are the other tool experts, the main tool experts. And we figure out how can we implement this idea and make it manufacturable. Um, and if we can't, how do we work around what we have and make that work um, for whatever, whatever sort of uh, requirement they need to meet? What is it in your chemical background that helps you make those decisions day to day? Like, what are the things that you're analyzing and looking at? It makes a lot of sense to me what the mechanical person would be looking at. Like if the electrical person or the inventor or whatever came to the mechanical person and said, can we do this? This is what I'm trying to do. Um, when somebody comes to you and to you and says that, what in your chemistry background enables you to make that sort of a call? Yeah, so there there is the um, mechanical engineer who has more of the equipment expertise, and then on the other side of that, there's the electrical engineer that has the device expertise. And then how do I fit in, in between the two? Um, most of it, to be honest, when, when I studied chemical engineering in school, you take a lot of coursework where you have, um, you learn the basic fundamentals bet between or behind uh, thermodynamics, um, mass transfer, heat transfer, um, reaction kinetics in, in chemistry and stuff like that. And so I kind of come in with all of that knowledge and all of that uh, educational background. And the mechanical engineer understands how this mass flow controller 
which might control a, control a gas flow, he understands how that works. He understands the components of the tool. He understands, um, you know, how this heater core with a certain amount of applied power gets to this temperature and, and all of that kind of machinery expertise. Um, and the device guy understands that this uh, compound and this film has this electrical property. Well, I'm the guy that understands that in order to create that film with the with the um, the chemistry behind that film, you need to have this chemical. You need to have this gas, this gas, and they need to react at this certain temperature to be able to combine. And um, the product that reaction will give you whatever sort of composition that you're looking for. So I'm the guy that knows the chemistry more or less. Um, I know at what temperature, at what pressure um you know your your flow ratios all of that kind of stuff in order to come up with that um basically final final product that might be in their head it's interesting so it sounds like you really are like a middleman between the two other um branches of engineers yeah essentially um like i said you kind of have to know both a little bit of the device side and then a little bit of the equipment side. And then you're kind of the, the mediator in between. And, and you kind of work as a group to get things all to where they need to be. That's really interesting, man. So let's, uh, let's wind this thing down, Matt, and try to give people some advice. If anybody listening is, uh, is considering a path of being an engineer, what sorts of questions did you ask yourself when you were deciding on what type of engineer you wanted to be? And what sorts of questions maybe do you wish that you had asked yourself um, in order to try to make that decision? Yeah, so a little bit, I guess I could start with a little bit of background. Um, on myself. So I went to school with the idea, I went to a community college before I transferred to a four-year university. And I went to a community college with the intention of transferring into a four-year as a mechanical engineer. And I wanted to be a mechanical engineer because I had an interest in the automotive fields. I took a liking to cars and all sorts of things mechanical. And so I thought, oh man, mechanical engineering, like that's the greatest thing ever. I want to be a mechanical engineer. I want to work in the automotive industry or whatever. Um, after I took some general chemistry and uh, physics courses and that such, um, I kind of got more of an interest in chemistry. And so I heard about chemical engineering and that kind of, that kind of intrigued me there. Um, the main reason why I chose any sort of engineering background or engin engineering field um, was that I wanted to do design and development and I wanted to work with my hands and I really liked math and science. So for anyone that has a liking to math and science, um, they're either good at it or they just like it and they find it interesting and they want to work with um, an industry that allows you to work in your hands and do design work and calculations and all that. I think engineering is a great field and it's super, super, super broad too. Um, so back to, uh, back to how I chose chemical engineering, chemical engineering interests me because it had kind of more of that chemical foundation. Um, and I realized I kind of wanted to work more in the, um, environmental related fields and, uh, either with energy or raw materials. 
And so that kind of needed more of a chemical engineering background. Um, but one piece of advice I have is that either field and, and every field in engineering is incredibly broad. Once you realize that where you can go with your with your degree, you realize how many opportunities you have. And just because, you know, I got a degree in chemical engineering or if you got a degree in mechanical or electrical, um, there's just so much opportunity out there and so many different fields that you can put yourself into. And um, I think engineering just allows you, uh, it kind of builds your mindset. And if you're an analytical person, it allows you to kind of think about problems um, from like an engineering perspective and that analytical mindset and kind of basically break down problems and come up with resolutions in practical manners. So that's what I enjoy about engineering. That's kind of what drew me to the field. Interesting. So you're saying that it doesn't really matter what field you choose in engineering. Um, there's just, each field is so broad. Um, I mean, my, my degree is in chemical engineering. I didn't, I didn't take a single class except for maybe really basic physics that ever dealt with circuitry or, um, device, electrical engineering device physics, or, I mean, I knew so little about semiconductors before I got this job. And really it was just it was just the background and the classes that I took and the basic, basic fundamental understanding of of what I learned that kind of allowed me just to go into the field and learn what I needed to. And I had enough of that kind of understanding and ability and mindset that, you know, you can learn the majority of what you need to know just because you have that background. And it's not necessarily, you know, it's not completely necessary to have that specific educational background. I mean, as an engineer, I think you have, as long as you have that proper mindset and, and the basic fundamentals, you kind of have the ability to just learn. You've kind of proven to yourself that you can learn. And, um, and that's really all you need to, to be successful in the field. Yeah. And you can shape your job the way you want it from there. Correct. Correct. And you learn so much more, once you actually, and this is what I realize now, um, and and with just talking to people inside my company, and they come from all different backgrounds. I mean, sure, a lot of the people that work as process engineers have chemical engineering backgrounds, but there's also a lot of people that have mechanical and electrical and even physics um, or chemistry. So it's really not limited. Um, and you learn an incredible amount outside of school. You, you learn a ton in school, but you really don't know where that's going to take you and where you're going to use it and um, until you actually get into a field. Yeah. Cool, man. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks so much for all the advice. Yeah, thanks, Blake. It was fun. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link 
link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview a particular field that you would like to hear about or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show thanks so much for listening you guys